Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is episode 96 of the show, and today we have Mr. Mark Henson with us. Mark is the founder of Sparkspace, a unique business meeting location designed to inspire creativity and collaboration, as well as the author of Ordinary Superpowers, Unleash the Full Potential of Your Most Natural Talents. Definitely think you guys are going to enjoy this episode, and I hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that interview, though, I want to ask you all for a quick favor. If you haven't already, pick up your phone and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. It really helps support our show, and it will make sure you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. We also want to take a moment to thank some of our supporters. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at GoFMX.com. Mike here again. Do you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus? We are looking for some new supporters to help keep the show going in 2018. To inquire about how you can help support the podcast, please send an email to Mike at ConqueringColumbus.com. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we have Mark Henson. And Mark is the founder of Sparkspace, a unique and exceptional business retreat right here in Columbus. Uh, he also happens to be a public speaker and a coach presenting at conferences around the country. And finally, he's also an author, having recently released a new book, Ordinary Superpowers, Unleash the Full Potential of Your Natural Talents. And we're really excited to have him here on the show today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Mark. Thank you. I, I'm thrilled to be here. This is very cool to be able to get to do uh, a live interview face-to-face. You know, most of these are on the phone, so it's really cool to be able to do one in my own backyard like this. Yeah, and we might, you know, it's actually, we, we've always pushed for in person you know sometimes we get a little bush back at that but we found that the interviews are a lot more back and forth the flow is a little better when you're actually seeing someone talking to yeah absolutely Skype. Yep. but uh what's a typical day look like for you uh you know i actually have a typical day um and and i've set it up that way to be uh my most productive kind of day and that's usually i get up uh in the morning uh 
after eight hours of sleep. I really try to get eight hours of sleep every day. Uh, so if I go to bed late, I try to sleep late. I have the luxury of doing that because I have a really good team in place and I don't have to punch a clock in my business, which is awesome. So uh, I get up in the morning, usually typically between 6.30 and 7, and I, uh, I shower, I do all that stuff. I make, I make a smoothie, I make coffee, and then I sit down with my smoothie and my coffee and I read for about anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half. Um, and then I uh, usually from there just get up and go down to the office unless I have a meeting out and about. And then from there, it's just kind of meetings and a little bit of creative work here and there. I might, uh, on, on one day I might write a blog post, on another day I might schedule a bunch of social media things. Uh, I try to do something creative until uh, noon or so, and then I lose all my creative juice and power, and then I, I use the meetings, uh, the afternoon for meetings and stuff like that that doesn't require as much creative work. So what are you reading? Uh, I actually start every day. I read I read the Bible, uh, and then I read something inspirational, and then I usually read a third thing that's uh, more kind of self help or per, per personal or professional development. Did you grow up as an avid reader? Was that something no. as a child? No, no, not till I hit like forty. Honestly, I I never enjoyed reading growing up, and somewhere around age forty, I I started picking up books, and I just couldn't put them down I just I, I absolutely fell in love with reading at that point to the to the point where if now I get up and I don't get to get that hour or so of reading every day or at least a half an hour um, I my whole day is thrown off there's something about reading first thing in the morning for me that kind of puts me in a really good mindset um, usually I read when I read either the Bible or I read something uh, inspirational. There's so many times there's a message there that I feel like is talking just to me for that particular day. You know, whether I'm going through some struggle or whether I have a big decision to make or whatever. And my reading time is when those sort of messages from the universe hit me more than any other time. Uh, so that's it's really, really important time for me. And then lately I've actually added on when I have the time I will actually do some meditation after my reading. So I, I actually use the Headspace app, and I do a 15-minute meditation after after reading, which is basically just shutting your brain down again and not trying not to think about anything, which is kind of hard to do after you've just read for an hour sometimes. But I think you're the first person we ever had on the show that said that they do have a typical day, which first is astounding, especially as a business owner and you know living the life that you live. It's it's usually not the typical thing that you hear from somebody, but. I do, I can relate to, you know, the daily reading aspect of it because I try to wake up and try to do some type of self-improvement reading. When I miss days like that, I kind of let my mind wander. And, you know, I like to think that I have enough uh, maybe positive affirmations to draw me back sometimes. But those morning, like, whether you, it's a devotional or whatever it is to kind of set that framework for the rest of the day, it does provide a perspective that you kind of, um, all the events that come at you through the day, you kind of use that lens, you know, to kind of outlook them on. So... I can understand the power behind that. I'm curious, so when you first started to get into reading, did you draw yourself more towards fictional books or nonfiction? Cause nonfiction. I, when I first started reading, it was, it was all like self-help, business-oriented books, all of that kind of stuff. And, and I'm still to this day, like I'm, I'm a kind of a junkie with that stuff. I love fiction too, uh, but I just don't ever give myself enough time and uh, you know, opportunity to read it. Because I feel like I only have so much time to read, and I feel like if I read, I want to feed my brain something useful. Not that fiction's not useful, it has its purpose, but I, I reserve fiction more for time off for either weekends or vacations. Although I, 
last week I read a book uh, that a friend of mine from high school wrote a, a novel. He launched his first novel, and so I read that, and it was actually really good. It's called Apotheosis. It was written from a woman's perspective, so I, I had to. The I told him the first like four chapters. I couldn't. I, I was picturing this woman character with his face because <laughs> I knew he wrote it. And uh, once I got past that, I actually really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's a pretty big hurdle. It's yeah, <laughs> like, Mike can probably probably speak higher to this than I can. Though, but I feel like I'm, I'm very similar. We don't have to get into too far into reading. We won't spend much more time on this. But I'm interested because it's an intriguing concept. I think a lot of people who don't grow up reading try eventually to translate to it, and it's difficult for them. Um, I'm more drawn to nonfiction because I feel like if I'm not doing that, I feel like I'm kind of wasting my time. And if I'm if I'm reading fiction, I'm, I love watching TV, so I would say I'd just rather spend that time yeah. watching TV. <laughs> but I find people like Mike or other individuals that I'm friends with that read a lot of fiction growing up, and they're like very creative individuals, very intelligent. They have unique ways of solving problems, yeah. you know. And um, I think it probably does do a lot for the brain that you know maybe goes unrecognized or unappreciated uh, by some people. Yeah, I, and I stopped at some point when I first started reading, I was really trying to kind of learn everything I could learn. And, you know, I was making copious notes of everything that I read. And, and I realized like any kind of course or seminar or class or whatever, where you, you get all of this information, you only retain just this tiny piece of it. And to me, the, the real power of reading is just continuing to do it. Because the, just the more you do it, there's just the stuff kind of rattles around in your brain and you have more to draw from, even if you don't always remember every single source. Uh, even when I wrote my book, I, part of the preface of the book, I had to say, look, there's going to be a lot of things in here that may sound familiar because I'm probably going to like regurgitate some things that I've learned and I don't even remember where I've learned them all. Um, you know, so, you know, I'm giving credit to everybody I've ever studied or read a book and if I've accidentally quote somebody because it I don't remember where it came from please forgive me for that so I kind of approach my uh, my knowledge that way I guess that I you just keep feeding it in and it, it does good things for you eventually even if you don't remember where it came from I should try that on my references page for my upcoming project I don't think, yeah. they're, gonna, I don't think they're gonna take that admission uh, do you know what else changed for me though when it came to reading was uh, how I picked my next book uh, because I would I would read books all the time, and I would see books on like a bestseller list or the hot new book that came out, and I would pick that up. And more often than not, I found myself getting a couple of chapters in and being really bored, even though they might have otherwise been really good books. And I found that I would sometimes go back to those books at a different time and try to read them again, and it was a completely different experience. They, they would be very relevant to me at that time. So I really started paying attention to what is it I need to read and not worrying about like what the hottest new book or any of that was. And what I did was every time I'd get to the end of a book, and I still do this, uh, I would just be open to the next book, whatever that is. And I started finding that the next book always presented itself to me. Um, I would start seeing a book. It, it could be a book that's 10 years old or 15 or 20 years old, but I would see it in like five different places over the span of a couple of weeks. So I usually pick it up, I read about it, and I look it up on Amazon, and almost always I feel like that's the next book I need to read. Mm -hmm. It just starts presenting itself to me. Yeah, I, and uh, to I could talk about books for a long time. <laughs> I will have to talk more after this, but I'm going to go ahead and we're going to push away from you the books. You can cut out any of that book stuff you want. I don't nah, no, it's, not, we'll, it's not a terrible segue, though, because now we can go back and we can say, okay, well, now that you're into books now, let's talk about the childhood. Right. <laughs> let's bring it up. <laughs> we're we're going to go full day. circle when you didn't like books. And let's <laughs> talk a little bit about kind of your career before founding Sparkspace and, you know, maybe 
a little bit about childhood, college, and uh, your career leading up to that. Sure. Yeah, I grew up uh, in a little town just outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan. I know in Columbus that's like a bad word, but it's uh, it was a great place to grow up. A uh, little town called Chelsea. Uh, best known for the actor Jeff Daniels, actually. That's uh, of Dumb and Dumber fame. That's where uh, that's where he's from. That's where he still lives, actually. So I always say he's the he's the most famous export, and I'm like the second most famous export. So that tells you that we have no other exports except Jeff Daniels in my town. Um, <laughs> so I uh, grew up there, and I grew up out in the country on 10 acres, surrounded by 10 acre plots all over the place. Not a lot of people or kids or anything. It was basically me and my dog. So. I credit that kind of upbringing to a pretty big imagination even today. Uh, I had to invent things to do. I was the kind of kid who built tree houses and played in the woods and like, you know, I had to, I had to make up all of my games and everything. Um, I did have friends that lived other places, but they were pretty far away and it, not walking distance. So um, on day in, day out, it was just me and the dog. So I also have a thing for dogs too, and that's probably because of that as well. Um, I went to college in Oklahoma, and uh, I wanted to be in broadcasting at the time. So I, I went to school for mass communications, specialized in radio and TV broadcasting. And then after college, um, after a series of internships, and then I got a, a jobs after college, I was a radio DJ for several years after college uh, under the name Joe Bahama. Everybody Joe always Bahama. wants to know. Yeah, so I used the name <laughs> Joe Bahama for a long time. Never, ever used my real name in radio. I used a couple of other more boring names, but Joe Bahama is the one everybody seems to remember. So, so what drew you to radio? I mean, what made you say, hey, this is what I want to do? Uh, when I was in seventh grade, actually, uh, it's these DJs from a local radio station came and DJed a middle school dance. And I thought they were the coolest people I'd ever seen. And they were playing the music, and they were just having so much fun, and I thought, that's what I want to do. So I pursued it from that moment, from seventh grade all the way through college and beyond. Um, and then I it found out it's really not a, a, it's a super fun thing to do, but it doesn't pay well. Uh, the kind of people it attracts are, are not the kind of people I really enjoy hanging out with for the most part, although I still have some really good friends that were in radio uh, back in the day with me and are still in radio today, even in Columbus. And, uh, you know, great people. But overall, the industry just does not draw, like, <laughs> people who are really into the kind of things that I'm into, like personal development and success and those kinds of things. It draws a very insecure crowd, let me put it that way. Um, and it doesn't pay well. And you get fired a lot. I got fired three times in seven years, and that was about it. I was done. How does the career evolve from there? Like, where do you go after that? After that, uh, I didn't know what to do when I got fired, and I was just, like, lost. And my wife actually found this company um, because she was a TV reporter at the time. She had interviewed uh, somebody at this company called Fitch, which was a design and marketing and branding consultancy at the time. And she, their facilities were amazing, and they were, it was such a cool place to work. And she came home that day, and she said, I found the place you need to work. And so I called them up, I went over, I took a tour, I interviewed, I somehow talked my way into a job there as a copywriter and uh, worked there for seven years and loved every minute of it. It was such a great place to work, such great people, such great offices, and it was there that the idea for Sparkspace was born because it was such a neat place to work that it was something I kind of wanted to create uh, for other people because we had this really fun, creative studio environment, and I knew 
by working with clients that almost nobody got to work in an office like that. Now it's a lot more commonplace. Like even the offices we're sitting in right now doing this interview, really fun, cool, hip, all that. That didn't exist 20 years ago for most people. Uh, so I wanted to create a place where people could get away and, and do whatever they needed to do outside the office uh, in a very sort of unrestricted, creative, comfortable, uh, you know, environment where they could actually have a little bit of fun while they were getting their work done. So taking it back to the moment when you were fired and the moment where you finally found a spot where you felt comfortable, do you remember kind of how you dealt emotionally with, you know, being turned down or turned away from a job and then what you found at Fitch for seven years that made you feel so fulfilled besides just the environment and, and the workspace? Yeah. Uh, going back to being fired, I mean, it's that's a devastating feeling, um, especially when you're doing what you love doing, which I did. I actually loved being in radio. I loved many aspects of it except for some of the people aspects. Um, and I, I just remember feeling completely lost. At, like I didn't know what to do with my life at that time. I was 20... I was around 26 years old, I think, at that time, and I'd been fired for the third time by by the time I was 26, and I just remember, and we all got fired at the same time, the whole staff, they brought in, because they changed the format of the station, and they fired everybody except one guy, and I just remember thinking, I don't know what to do, should I sue him, should I, like, I was so lost, and I was so mad and angry for a little bit, um, it was probably a few months before my wife came and had found that other place for me to go explore. Um, and I just didn't know what to do. And so I just took a little bit of time, actually. I didn't really go out and apply for jobs or anything right away. I actually, I kept applying for radio jobs, thinking something might come up. Um, and I did work. I got a part-time job at, one, at a country radio station at that time uh, just to I don't know, just keep my foot in the door, I guess. But I did other things. I volunteered. I like I delivered meals on wheels for uh, the Meals on Wheels people. And um, I just tried to fill up my time with productive stuff that felt like I was doing something good. And I think that kind of helped pull me out of that funk a little bit um, so that I could be open to the next opportunity, kind of let go of myself and started serving other people a little bit. I find throughout my whole life, like every time I get too self-absorbed, bad things start to happen and when I start to focus on other people good things start to happen so that happened there and then moving into the next job part of what made that such a fulfilling place was I mean it was really all about the people and the culture I mean we had great space and facilities and all that which added to it for me because I, I love that kind of I love environment I love I, I love how an environment impacts how you feel and how you think and how you work. Uh, but it was really the people, just such good people at that company, all doing top-notch work. Like, like I said, I talked my, my way into that job. Um, there's no reason on earth they should have hired me, none. And somehow I, I convinced them to hire me. Um, and I want to I wanna think it was a good decision for them long term, but I'm sure they were looking at me at the time like, we don't know where you fit or how you fit in, but you seem to want to work here really bad. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, I one of the things I always tried to do there was not just be part of the work there, but to, to help improve the culture there. Like, we, we had a lot of sort of fun and games kind of stuff. I mean, we did margarita parties and we did... I, I actually sponsored margarita parties. I don't even drink now, which is funny. But at that time, we I called them Mark's Margarita Mondays. 
and I would bring in a blender and a bunch of margarita mix and a bunch of tequila and mix up margaritas on the, on the deck uh, on a Monday afternoon just for fun. Um, I don't know why they let me do that because it seems like a total liability thing now. Because you were Joe Bahama. Because I was Joe Bahama. <laughs> yeah. You won that place. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we, I don't know, I just really, really participated there, um, which I think, I think that's a big reason why people are unhappy in a lot of the places where they work because they just never really throw themselves into it. They never give themselves fully over to it. And I, I feel like I did. It was, it was like a second high school experience for me or second college experience you know that really intense time where you're with a bunch of people you really bond with um and you just go through all kinds of cool experiences together so that that's what made that place really special the interesting thing about that is i haven't worked there for 20 years almost 20 years now and i still have friends from that era in fact, I just hired one to help me do some stuff at my business. I've hired multiple people that used to work there to work on various projects over the years. We've stayed very close for a bunch of people who haven't worked together for 20 years. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting, and Josh and I talk about this concept a lot of, you know, you mentioned throwing yourself completely in with the team, and I think it kind of stems towards that concept that Josh and I talk about, which is that when you, whenever you do something really hard with a group of people, and you put your all into it, you're gonna bond with those people a lot more than you would anyone else. And you know, putting yourself completely into that position and really committing to your job, uh, it's, it's, it's hard, number one. I mean, you, know, you don't want to give everything you have, but if you do, you're gonna form a lot of bonds with people that are, that are special and that you're not gonna be able to uh, forget so easily. Right, I think. And I think the value of forming uh, relationships and environments that are more relaxed and aren't you know, just because you're not necessarily performing on the job, but you're building relationships with your coworkers goes undervalued in how much that carries over into the workplace. You know, yeah. I, I think I'm probably definitely guilty of it more than most people. I don't really, I never really valued it until I started to realize how much uh, things change when you don't have it there. You know, if you don't have those connections with your coworker, you don't spend the time to kind of sit down and talk with someone at the refrigerator or, you know, spend time with them after work or create these culture environments where you're really forming meaningful relationships with these people. Um, it definitely changes all the dynamics and everything around you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious to hear, though, you know, as you were going through that, what did the process look like within your head, like developing your career? And you said you weren't focusing on yourself anymore, but focusing around other people. When you started to notice yourself focused too much on yourself and you pivoted to focusing on others, how were you able to kind of make that transition and kind of step back and say, hey, uh, maybe I'm doing too much, you know, just for Mark? I think the first time around, back when I started delivering meals on wheels and all of that, I think I was just bored. You know, I just got bored of thinking about my own problems and thinking about like the fact that I didn't have a job and I was, I didn't have anything else to do and I didn't have any, a lot of money because like we just had my wife's income and, and she wasn't making a ton of money at that time. So my options were kind of limited actually. So that was, a, I love to say it was this big revelation of, yeah, I really needed to focus on other people um but it it did teach me the value of that when i when i finally plugged in and started volunteering and that kind of thing and throughout the years i mean i, I get away from it and i can feel it when i get away i i just got back from my very first mission trip uh over spring break and realized i had not done anything like that in years and years um and i've also had a, a, a year this year that i've had a lot of like personal focus on me and uh, 
I won't say that's the cause of all my problems, but it was sure nice to like turn that focus around and do something completely for somebody else um, and kind of put yourself through an ordeal almost to, to make it happen. I mean, a mission trip is, is not all fun and games by any means. It was kind of tough to sleep in a tent and sleep through the rain and all kinds of stuff and build a house for somebody when you don't know how to build a house. It was, it was interesting. Definitely. So uh, I kind of want to pivot towards spark space and talk about where the idea come from. And you mentioned it was part of, you know, your experience at your, your current job, but where did the idea come from and what made you want to jump off on your own? Uh, the idea actually came from being at a conference. I went to this creativity conference that was held every year for a while. And at this conference, uh, there were two people that spoke in a breakout group that had creative meeting spaces going. One was in Chicago and one was in San Antonio. And I watched what they were doing and they showed pictures of what they were doing. And I just, again, it was kind of like that moment in seventh grade when I saw the DJs DJing the dance. I, I looked at this, I'm like, oh my God, that looks like so much fun. And uh, it was sort of the crossroads of everything I've ever loved. It was about creativity. It was about uh, collaboration and bringing people together. It was about cool design and, and great space, all of this stuff I've always loved. And so that put the idea in my head and I came back and I remember just talking all about it with anybody who would listen, especially my wife. And then I kind of put it away for a while. And it took about five years, actually. I just kept coming back to that idea. I've always been one of those guys that I have had a million business ideas. You know, I'm the, I'm the guy who watches Shark Tank every week and goes, oh, I had that idea 20 years ago, you know, because <laughs> uh, I just had tons and tons of ideas, but I never pursued any of them. And this idea is the only one that just kept coming back over and over and over again. And then I hit this moment in time in my life where, like, I, it's a bunch of stuff in my personal life kind of imploded all at once. And uh, honestly, I was sitting in counseling one day, and my counselor said, um, if you could do anything, like your life, you're telling me your life is crap right now, so if you could do anything in the world right now, what would you do? And I said, I would start this business. And he's like, what are you waiting for? And I, I didn't have a good answer for him. And I loved where I worked. I still loved the company I worked for, but I, if I could do anything, I would have done this other thing. So I actually started making a plan right away to, to open this business. And then I went to my company first and I said, hey, I'm looking at doing this. I have actually found a place that I might want to do it. I found a place to rent. Uh, but I wanted to come to you first before I signed anything, before I launched anything, because I didn't want to step on any toes. And I, you guys have always been really good to me and I've, I've loved working here. So they said, well, thank you for coming to us. First of all, that's really nice. A lot of people wouldn't do that. Um, and they said, we were thinking about doing something similar in, inside our own walls. Would you be interested in managing that? And I said, yeah, sure. I'd, lo I'd love to do that because I really just wanted to do the idea. It wasn't about starting a business necessarily. It was just I wanted to bring this thing to life. So if I could use their money to do it, I was more than happy to use their money instead of mine. And uh, it never panned out. A couple months later, I went back to them like, what's the deal? And they said, well, it's going to be a long time before we can really pull the trigger on that. So if you want to do your own thing, then go ahead. And so I did. So I, uh, a couple months later, I had the doors open, and you know, the, the rest is history, I guess. That's, that's where it all got started. And that was in 2000. Uh, we opened the doors in 2000. Yeah, and have there been, I mean, so let's talk early years. You know, from the moment you opened that door, 
to you know the first year, year and a half. What are some of your biggest challenges? And you know, I mean, was it getting the word out, telling people, hey, what is Spark Space? I mean, what what were the biggest pieces to get the ball rolling? Yeah, getting the word out is the hardest part because you have no money, and there was no social media at that time. There, none of that existed, uh, so it was it was all literally word of mouth. So. What we did is we just had a couple of parties where we invited everybody that we knew that was in the corporate world that would have potentially have a team of people that might uh, go off site and do this kind of thing. Because I knew people were renting spaces and hotels and conference rooms and all of that. Um, but there was nothing like Sparkspace at the time. And so we needed to introduce the concept to people. So we had some some parties and just invited people we knew and just and told them to tell their friends. And they did. They were all very supportive of us. And we gave it away. I gave, I gave away the first, I want to say, three or four months. Just anybody who wanted the space, I said, please come use it. Please come use it. And so uh, we just sort of invested in that and did a free trial kind of an offer for the first three or four months. And then it started taking off. And people started calling us back to, do, to come back for another meeting. Or the word of mouth spread to somebody else. And they didn't know we were doing freebies, so I would charge them, you know. Um, and it just started there and, and I was barely charging for it in the first place anyway. Um, we literally charge like 10 times now what, what we used to charge when I first started because I had no idea what I was doing or mm -hmm. how much things were really going to cost. We actually took a, a uh, second mortgage out on our house, $25,000 second mortgage on our house. And I used the first 10,000 to pay my rent up front for the year. Um, my rent is also 10 times more than that now, by the way. It's crazy. <laughs> um, actually, more than that. I just, I'm just looking at a new lease right now, which is more than that. Um, and then I used the rest to furnish it. So I spent about $10,000 furnishing and kept a little bit of money for cushion money. Um, and that's how we got up and running. So what does a creative space look like as you're, as you're about to build this company and build out these rooms for these companies to come in and use? Did you just mimic exactly what you saw at Fitch? Did you apply your own creativity to it? A uh, little bit of everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of mimicked a little bit of what we had at Fitch, but even there, our conference rooms were just kind of boring conference rooms. Uh, so I wanted something much more lively, much more, much more colorful and energetic than a typical conference room. So I really, what I did is I, I, my whole idea was to make it feel more like a loft apartment, uh, like a place you'd want to live, like the coolest place you'd ever, you could ever afford to live. Um, and that worked out really well. So it's really set up, uh, and to this day, like most of our rooms are set up this way where we have a big table area, like a big dining or conference table area, and then a living room area with a bunch of comfy furniture uh, so that people have the ability to move back and forth. Um, they can arrange it however they want. Everything is very movable so that it can, it can arrange on the fly throughout the day. So there's just a lot of things that I wanted to include by, because I was a facilitator too at that time, I did a lot of brainstorming facilitation for Fitch, um, and I loved that process as well. So I just kind of built the place I always would want to work. Um, that's what I've always done with everything. I do the marketing that appeals to me. I I, I design spaces that I want to be in. Like it's a very it's a very Mark centered business, um, but other people have resonated with it as well. So. You know, if I have advice for people, like when you're thinking of starting something or doing something, like I know a, there were people that say, like, look for a hole in the market and try to fill that hole. And that works, too. But I think I've always seen the best results out of people and the most success when they design something that they want, that that fills a need for them. 
Because I figured if I had that need, then other people had the need too. I just had to go find those people. I feel like that sometimes, but I also think that I'm uh, so much of a unique individual in the way that I like approach things and my aspects of life. I don't know if a lot of people would like the same things as me, so I try to ask other people. A lot of times I come up with ideas and I ask somebody else, like, man, that is horrible. And I'm like, I would like that so much. So it's very confusing to me. <laughs> you got to ask more than one person for sure. <laughs> you you know? got to get a smattering of, uh, <laughs> of variables there. I mean, if you're one person's Alex Picasso, he just, I mean, he's a weird guy too, so... Yeah, um, he's a dream crusher. But <laughs> how, did, how did the monetization structure develop? Because obviously, um, you know, you, from you know what I've been told, you guys charge a decent amount for using the space. Obviously, the value it provides, you know, justifies that. And you guys continue to have companies come back to you over and over sure. again. But from somebody saying, yes, I'll use it for free, to them saying the first time you charge, there's got to be a nervous point where you're like, well, I hope they say yes again. And yeah. then growing that pricing... Every time, every time we raise the rates, I it I lose sleep, because I do feel like if we raise our rates by five dollars, that we're gonna lose all of our business, that no one's ever gonna pay another dime, kind of thing. Uh, funny thing is a, a little side story. The very first company that took us up on our free offer never came back, and this guy promised me they would come back. They do all these meetings, and I, if I could just use it for free, that would you know I will come back and, and bring all this other business. And he never came back. Now I have met, I actually met his wife later, like years later, and she said, "Oh, they loved they loved coming to your space so much." He talked about it for years, and I was like, "Why did he never come back?" <laughs> um, so yeah, the pricing we started out with just flat a flat price, and I think at that time it was like three hundred dollars or something to to use the whole room all day, and that always included like snacks and some beverages and coffee I just try and flip charts I included everything it was an all-inclusive price and um, then over time like you just start realizing like well first of all we gotta we have to cover all our expenses and add profit in there um, which is another mistake I've seen people make is they when they're budgeting out everything they don't add the profit that they want to make in there they just try to cover their expenses it's like well the profit is what you need to actually grow at all so then eventually I built that in and, uh, and just started charging more. And um, the very first time I charged more, I doubled my rates. And I doubled my rates because I hired a coach at that time. And he's, it was the thing I was really the most nervous about. And it was the thing that was keeping me from moving to the next level with this business because I needed to expand. The original space was only so big and, and really couldn't even support me uh, by myself, so I needed a, a larger space, and it had proven it, the concept. So I knew that expanding was possible, and that we would continue to grow, or hopefully continue to grow. And so this coach challenged me. He said, "All right, so uh, why don't you double your rates?" And I about like had a an anxiety attack, and uh, he said, "Do it with just the next one client. Just see what happens with one client. The next person who calls to, to book space." Quote them double what you've been quoting people. And I did, and they bought it. Didn't even blink at it. And I was just like so flabbergasted. You know, I was just like, I couldn't believe that they did that. But it was, it, it demonstrated to me that the value was there, that people were willing to pay for it. And I was probably really undercutting myself. Um, I think there's this tendency for people who own a business or create something to undervalue it. Um, and I've seen this with people, whether they're in service businesses or they're graphic designers doing freelance or whatever. 
Um, actually, we had just last week at Sparkspace, we have this woman who teaches massage therapists how to run their business better and how to grow their business. And that's the when I walked in to, to kind of observe what they were doing a little bit, that was the point she was making to them is you have to charge more. You Some of you have been in business for 10 years and have never raised your rates, you know, and she was really admonishing them for not raising their rates and not growing their business that way. So I just sort of systematically started building it in over time. I, at, at that point, we kind of kept pushing the envelope until I felt like people were starting to resist a little bit. And I think that's a really good place to be. Like you will lose people along the way if you charge at a certain level, but that's kind of where your sweet spot is. You don't want to be so affordable that everybody buys you all the time. Um, because you're probably undercharging. So it, that took a long time to learn that lesson. But once we did, then we started becoming really profitable at that point, which was nice. Um, and feeling like we're still, I still feel like we're undercharged for what we deliver. Uh, but there is a, there's always that threshold where people just, they're not going to spend that much more. So now we've kind of reached that point and we sit, now we systematically raise our rates uh, about every two years. So we try to leave as much space in between as we can. And then we raise it just, you know, a little bit at a time. We don't make any big jumps anymore. How has the structure of the space and, I guess, the experience evolved along with the team? Um, you know, who you employ, how many employees you guys have, and, you know, what the future looks like for you guys. Yeah. Uh, it started out, it was just me for the longest time. And uh, then I got tired of doing everything because at that time, everything was truly everything. It was mopping the floors and cleaning the bathrooms and, and setting up catering and you name it. Um, so the fir first people I ever hired was a cleaning crew because I got tired of like being there at 10 o'clock at night cleaning up after everything and then having to go to work the next day and do it all over again. Uh, but I've built a team over time, and I, I've been lucky enough to say this for years and years and years now. Like every year, I swear, I feel like I have the best team I've ever had so, because I think it just keeps getting better. Like we keep hiring mo more and more like quality people, um, and our team is small. It's only six people on our team, plus some contractors and other people. We have catering partners that we use on a regular basis. So we have this sort of extended team that really helps us deliver what we deliver. But our core team is only six people. And those are all, uh, there are five full-time employees and one part-time employee. And the team is everything. Um, without the kind of people I have in place, we couldn't pull off what we do. Um, I know other facilities that are that are comparable in size to what we do that do uh, maybe even uh, a little bit less business than we do that have a team of like 17 people to try to pull it off with what we do with six and that's one of the things I'm super proud of because we've kept it very streamlined very simple you know we go high quality on everything that we possibly can we don't overload ourselves with too much complexity or too many bells and whistles um, and, uh, and it seems to work. And I think that goes all the way back to when I started the business. It, it was all just me, so I had to keep it as simple as possible to do uh, for one person. And we just adopted that attitude all along the way. So I think what we achieved with six people, most, most places it would take double that at least. Um, and just hiring really, really good people along the way is uh, the absolute key to, to the, success, the, the longevity and success of the business. Um, I just, I've got such a phenomenal team in place right now. I just, it allows me to not even be there. Like I, I, I technically don't work there. Mm -hmm. You know, I just get to be the, the visionary, the owner, the sort of uh, 
hopefully inspirational leader of the thing and I don't have to actually work there. Speaking of visionary, what, what does the long-term vision look like for Sparkspace? We're actually evolving right now, which is kind of cool. Um, you know, we, we have been in the same place uh, doing the same thing for quite a while. And now, you know, uh, the landscape is changing, the, the workforce is changing. And, and we've been looking at that for the last couple of years thinking, you know, if we keep doing what we're doing, we'll, we'll become a dinosaur like anything. So what's next? What are people, what are people going to need? And while the space is great and we still love the space and we're still even expanding the space, um, we kind of came to the conclusion that a little bit longer term, um, people's needs for that are going to change. But what's not going to need is they're going to they're going to always need uh, the the ability to go to go from point A to point B. Um, so we started thinking about what else do they need besides space, um, and we have observed over the last 18 years now that. I'll, even though people might come to us and rent space from us to have meetings, uh, they don't always have their best meeting ever because they don't know how to run a meeting or they, they get lost along the way. And so we are now starting to offer more facilitation services and more uh, take a more sort of consultative approach to helping them design their meetings and execute their meetings. Um, and we are moving from kind of a meeting space or meeting business to what we consider to be more of a retreat business, which is where we're involved in all aspects of everything that they're going to do there, including helping them get wherever they want to go through the, the course of their meeting by having really, really good facilitators involved in their process as well. So we just hired a full-time lead facilitator for the first time ever. Um, I had traditionally done most of that work for us in the past, but I decided that we need somebody else. We need somebody, a next generation kind of a, a thinker. So we brought in somebody to do that as well. So now we're offering that, and that's starting to take off. And that's very brand new, actually. That's a really unique approach. I think um, it's interesting because as the day job that Mike and I have, as our company continues to evolve, especially just the startup sphere here in Columbus continues to grow, I think we reach out to a lot of other companies to see, you know, how, how did you guys hold your quarterly meetings for this division of the company? How did this kind of work out for you guys? And what did you put your focus on? Where was the energy? What what attributes did you need? Um, so for you guys to encompass that and then bring people in and have the space to hold it as well is a really interesting approach. Do you tailor to each industry or do you kind of um, make it kind of a generic you know landscape that they can then build off of? We have two two different approaches, and one is we have a couple of off the shelf kind of programs. I hate to call them off the shelf because they every time we work with somebody, the dynamic is different every time. So it's always kind of a unique experience. Uh, but we have one based on my book called uh, The Superpowered Team. And we also have one called Fearlessly Engaged Teams, which is a workshop or uh, a retreat experience that helps companies get to the primary fears that are holding them back. Because most most issues and challenges that teams have are rooted in some sort of fear. Uh, there's a there's a fear of uh, repercussion for speaking up, or there's a fear of uh, failure. There's a fear of success. There's a, there's some sort of primary fear that is getting in the way of the individuals as well as the group. So we have a whole experience designed to help uncover what those are, and then move forward uh, as a team together. And so that's one approach: is people can engage one of those programs or workshops, and then the other approach is a much more customized approach. So what do you need? Uh, what are what's your challenge or what is your point B you're trying to get to? Let's figure out what your point A is and then let's figure out a, a plan to, to get as far as we can during that meeting. 
And then one of the things that we've added that we feel like is a unique component is um, everything that we do with the team now includes a follow-up coaching component. So the guy I just hired to be our lead facilitator, his name is Mike Klaus. He, uh, he was actually an executive uh, and life leadership coach at uh, 31 Gifts. And so now he's kind of leading that for us. And the reason I was particularly excited to hire him is so that we could add this coaching component. So we will work with a leader for three months, at least three months after they have a retreat so that they can then lead their people more effectively on whatever it is they were trying to accomplish. And it wasn't just a once and done kind of a situation. So one of the things we found is that people would come to a retreat you know, and you've, you've probably done this too. You have a meeting, you're all wound up, it's all great, you know, and three weeks later, it's, it's all gone. Well, we wanted to make sure that that didn't happen, so we built in this coaching component to, to help them continue the conversation for at least three months. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, before we kind of start wrapping up, asking our final questions, got to touch on the book. So let's talk about Ordinary Superpowers, Unleash the Full Potential of Your Natural Talents, and what are Ordinary Superpowers? Ordinary superpowers are those abilities and talents and skills that you have. And I believe we each have three or four of these kind of skills and abilities. These are the things that are a bit beyond just a normal everyday strength for you. Mm -hmm. So they're the things that come naturally to you, that feel very natural. They just naturally come out of you. Maybe you were born with them. Maybe you've developed them along the way. But right now in your life, they feel natural to you. Um, the second thing that makes it a, uh, an ordinary superpower is that it's elevated for you. When you look around your network of friends, family, coworkers, whatever, you have an elevated level of that ability or talent or skill. The third part of it is that it has to help other people. Certainly helps you along the way too, but it has to help other people to qualify as a superpower. And then finally, uh, it's something that you just absolutely enjoy using. You, you get energy from instead of being depleted when you use it. Um, so those are sort of the four criteria of what an ordinary superpower is. And the reason I call them ordinary superpowers is once you identify what those are, sometimes people have this really hard time understanding that those are a superpower because when they feel so natural and, and ordinary to you, they don't really feel very special. They don't feel like, you don't feel like that's what helps make you stand out. You just feel like that's, that's how I roll, that's how I'm wired. Um, so I called it ordinary superpowers to wake people up to the fact that those things that feel normal and ordinary to you are very likely what help you contribute the best to, to the world around you and help you stand out, um, help you have the most satisfaction. These are the types of things that when you do them, you love doing them and we don't ever get to do them enough because we get down these career paths and whatever that require other talents and skills sometimes. And then we forget to use these superpowers. So I wanted to wake people up and say, hey, use your superpowers more. Be very proactive. Figure out what they are. Be proactive about that. You'll have a greater impact and you'll be a lot more fulfilled. Definitely. And, you know, and I was waiting for a quip or something from Josh over there to tell me my ordinary superpower is not hearing people when I'm watching television or reading a, uh, <laughs> you know, reading a book. But, uh, he was looks very like... good at blatantly ignoring people. I don't know if I'm going <laughs> to give him the satisfaction of calling that a superpower. It's but, uh, extreme focus. That maybe that's a, it's, uh, Oh, yeah, I do have extreme focus. But we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and keep moving on here. And earlier on, you mentioned you hated reading growing up. But uh, currently you're an author and you wrote a book, Ordinary Superpowers. So how did that end up happening? How did you go from hating reading to wanting to write your own book? 
Uh, well, I've been writing for a long time. Like I've, I've been blogging ever since blogging was a thing. And I, uh, have been a copywriter my whole life from my previous company is even back in radio I did a lot of copywriting so I, I actually enjoy writing uh, which is odd because most people you talk to that have written a book they just don't even like the writing process they, they don't consider themselves writers they just had a concept they needed to get out to the world so I enjoy the writing part and that part was fairly easy I'd actually started two or three other books in the past and just not gotten very far the reason I I was able to do this book and make this one come to life is because I went through a similar process that helped me get through a, a kind of a tough time in my both personal and professional career where uh, I built this business and I'm a very creative person. My ordinary superpowers are, are exploring new things. Um, that's one of them. Uh, simplifying things and then communicating through writing and speaking. Those are my top three abilities and talents. And um, I used those a lot when I was building my business. And then once the business matured to a certain point, I didn't get to use those powers nearly as much. I kind of assumed this sort of operator administrator role. And I didn't even know it at the time, but I was slowly like dying inside um, to the point where I got, I was, I entered into this long-term low grade sort of depression because I was not doing things that really lit me up. And I got stuck in this rut for, for like six years. And the business was doing just fine, but I was not doing so great because I wasn't doing what I'm, what I'm born to do, what I'm wired to do. And uh, I went through a process to figure out what is it that I'm missing or what is it that I'm not using that would help me feel better about spending my days the way I do. And I discovered these, you know, these superpowers of mine. And I, I, after going through that process, I'm like, wow, that, that was really helpful. And um, the process uh, that I went through, I just started to document. And I documented it in a workshop first just to see if I could help other people do it. And I really wasn't even intending to write a book. I just wanted to do this workshop to help other people. And then once I got through the workshop, I'm like, crap, I, this workshop was so good and people got such good response from it. And uh, probably one of the best things I'd ever put together from a workshop perspective. So I looked at that and the way that I design a workshop, it's pretty much outlined like a book would be outlined. So I kind of adopted that workshop and adapted that workshop into the, the, the chapters of the book and started writing. And it took me a year and a half before I had a finished book in my hand. But um, I just kept writing and writing and writing and editing and editing and editing and then designing, 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 and then finally got it printed. So it's a long process. Yeah, yeah it definitely sounds like a... Uh it was for you know, me anyway. <laughs> I mean, I, every time I hear somebody talk about writing a book, they always say the same thing. They're kind of like, yeah, it just, it just took a lot of time and, and effort. But um, from there, uh, we'll kind of pivot to one of our last questions. And, and Conquerors, if you guys want to check out Ordinary Superpowers, it'll be linked up in the show notes where you can find it. Um, but one of the last questions we always like to ask center around the theme of our show, uh, which is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that for uh, Conquering Columbus, what do you think of the phrase? And how does it apply to your life? Uh, oh, you asked me at the right time. Um, I think there's something to be said about um, not always being in complete control. Um, I think as human beings, we, we have this desire and this need to try to control everything in our life. Um, and... You know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a little more seasoned now. I mean, I'm 51. I was 32 when I started this business. 
and uh, I where I'm different now when it comes to live that living uncomfortably is that I've had to learn to just give up a lot of control. Um, and that's a really uncomfortable thing, especially for somebody like me who likes to create and build and then feel like I'm in control of something. So whether that's a business or a book or a project or a marriage or a relationship or whatever, I mean, I've had to give up control in a lot of different areas in my life in order to see those things thrive and succeed. Because if I had kept trying, kept control where I was comfortable all the time, sometimes these things would just die. They'd die in the vine or they'd die because my grip was too, too tight. Um, and I don't, you know, when I create something, when I'm involved in something, I want to see it live and thrive. So a lot of times that means I have to, I have to do things that I don't necessarily want to do um, in order to allow something to, to, to live the way it needs to live. Um, and my ideas are not always the best ideas. One of the things I've, I've learned as a boss about being uncomfortable is that not everybody's going to do things the way that I do. And uh, I've had to realize that there's a, there's a big difference between something that's, that I feel could be different versus better or, or that I feel is different than I, than I would do it versus I think I would do it better. Um, I have to let other people make decisions. I have to let other people like choose their own path. I have to let other people do things that, that I wouldn't necessarily do. That doesn't mean they're wrong. Um, and that was a big lesson that, that it took me decades to learn. Absolutely. And, Mark, thanks a lot for joining us on the show today. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Sure. And, uh, Conquerors, thanks for listening. If you want to check out Sparkspace or Mark's book, Ordinary Superpowers, they'll both be linked up in the show notes. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed that episode, learned a lot, and we will talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital. Through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software they serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You can drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.